Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, Episode 6, The Chillcast. Return of the Chill. So I had bigger ideas for this podcast initially, but I've had horrible insomnia problems this week and can't think straight. So instead of talking about some high concept idea, we're just going to chill and talk about some games. And cast. And cast. Yeah, it's going to be great. We're going to play some games, talk about some games. So... We thought it'd be fun to actually play a game on on the podcast, so we're going to play Skull, which Matt and I learned last week at the Board Game Empire meetup over in Cambridge, which if you live in the area is a really fun uh, meetup over by Porter Square. And we learned Skull, which is a game I've always wanted to learn because I've heard it's a great, like, super casual bluffing game, but we finally learned how to play it, and now we're going to teach Orion. So we don't actually own the game, so we're playing with magic cards. So, Orion... You see that you have three islands and a swamp in your hand. Indeed. How this game is going to work is we'll start with someone. They're going to place a card face down. And then we're just going to go around. Once everyone's placed one card, whoever's turn it is can then either place a card or they can bid of how many cards they can flip over without revealing a swamp or a skull. It has a skull on it, see? So Orion picks up fast. We should just go... Okay. Well, there's one more rule. Um, oh, you have to turn over your cards first, all of them. Okay. Which means if you have two cards down and one of them's a skull, don't don't bid more than one. Don't bid three. Actually, planning on turning cards over. You could do it by bluffing because once someone is bid, it gives an indication that they probably don't have any skulls in front of them. But you could bluff it out and hope someone raises you. So we go around and play cards, and then someone will start bidding at some point? Yeah, and, and then, then you we'll raise until... Until someone, everyone passes? Yeah. All right, I'm going to go. All right. And then... I'm going first. If you succeed, you'll flip over your mountain card, which is your score point, and if you succeed a second time, you win. If you lose, you discard a card from your hand randomly. That You can see which one is discarded, but no one else can, and we continue. All right, let's go. Okay, I've already put my card down. I apologize for... Touching the table and the microphone already. All right, let's let's do one round and then we'll get to actually talking. Okay, I will play this card. I'm going to play this card. I'll play another one. Ooh, so you can play or bid. I will also play one. I'll play one. I'll bid two. You'll bid two. So if you think that you can turn over more than two cards, that's to you, Orion. I'll bid. Three. I'll bid four. Note, people, there are six cards on the table right now. We each have put down two cards. I, I don't want to turn over five cards, so I'm good. You're good? So you, Mark. All right. I got two islands. I'm going to flip over Orion's, Orion's first one. Or the top one. Sorry. Goes top to bottom. And I'll do your other one. I'll... Boom. I knew it. And I oh. think you were bluffing it out. So I win a point. If I do it again, I win. Ha! Well, that was the practice round, so... No, that wasn't. No, you... you, you I won! Fair and I square. Was, Four out of six cards. Okay, fine. It's great. All right. So we'll keep playing this, but here with me today, as you can already probably figure out, is Matt, and we've got Orion, our regular contributors here at the Thoughtful Gamer Showcast. Hello. So by Showcast, I assume that you were primar- primarily referencing hockey. The sport played on the... That is the single worst segue I've ever heard. 
in played, my life. Played, but okay, go ahead, played, talk about hockey. Played on the chillest of surfaces. So he's, I'm not sure when this is coming is out. Is hockey more or less chill than curling by surface temperature? I have no idea. Never never curled. I'm gonna, so, so here's the deal. Stanley Cup finals start tomorrow as we record this. I just want to give my prediction. Pens in six. And it's just going to be the best possible. This might be the best possible finals matchup of the 16 teams that could have made it. Nashville Predators, Pittsburgh Penguins. It's just going to be it's going to be great. And, and we have to note here that Matt is a huge Penguins fan and is 100% Dynasty. biased. Dynasty, baby. And when he says best matchup, he means matchup most favorable to the Penguins. No, no, I don't. It's like it's this is like a 50-50 series. Both I thought teams, Nashville was a, like the lowest seed. They were. But but they're they're a great team. I think so, I looked so up, the, I think they had a losing here's why, record. Here's why you should be That's impossible. Here's why you should be excited about this. Both teams generate awesome offense, but in very different ways. Nashville comes from from the defense forward. Penguins have the best forwards in the league. It's, it's, it's going to be glorious. Just Okay, so Nashville's more of a like a fast break kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like turnover offense? Um, yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, the Penguins do that too. But, but like what you're looking for is their defenders are going to start the rush. Oh. Uh, on, you know. Okay. Uh, yeah. So like, from the, what the, you've told me before, the Penguins are very good in kind of the middle area of the ice. Yeah, yeah. Their, their whole team is pushing forward. So the forwards do a lot of defending kind of all over the ice, kind of like a okay. full press, full, full court press. Okay, and then Nashville just does the transition offense yes, really well. Yes, with great defenders that can also play offense quickly. That makes make sense. Make transition. So it's going to be if you great. can make a hockey board game. That, that I was thinking about that earlier. We'll have to save that for the next podcast. It would be way less less fast than hockey actually is, which would be the downer, but... Well, yes. But this, uh, anyway, there's anyway. completely unnecessary hockey information for you all. As an I aside, apologize. I'll take the pens in seven since uh, the Predators' first round series went four games, second round series went five games, conference finals went six games, which means the Stanley Cup can only go seven games. I'm going to take pens in five because the Nashville Predators had a horrible record when I looked it up the other day. I'm proud of you for not just picking against the Penguins out of spite for me. I actually enjoy watching the Penguins when you put it on. Oh, that's great. And no, this is going to be a great series. I don't really so root for any it. hockey teams, but if I had to, I guess it would be them. They don't seem dirty, so... That's true. They're, they're clean, yeah. upstanding citizens. Absolutely. Okay. The cleanest. The cleanest. Plus, I like penguins, like the animals, so... I, I have the pictures to prove it. They win on the mascot. Oh, gosh, please never release those pictures, man. <laughs> if I see you pick up your phone, I'm going to assume you're tweeting those pictures. All right, I'm going to start another round of this skull game. I, th- so- I think Mark gets right. to go. Oh, Mark gets Let's to go. go. Oh, it's to me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I will play a card. Let's start off this podcast, or I guess ask the post-hockey podcast, with some news for the Thoughtful Gamer. Two things since the last podcast. First of all, we got some fancy new music at the beginning and end of the podcast, which is super awesome. Hype. By a guy named Ben Barnes. It's either Barnes or Burns. I apologize, Ben. Um, 
with his his music is listed under abstraction is the name of his project i guess and he does really cool ambient music he does ambient music and then he's done like video games like 16-bit style stuff which is also really cool uh but that's the music you heard which makes us sound i think 100 percent more awesome i love it i'm into it so we got the music I've got a Board Game Geek Guild set up, so if you are on Board Game Geek, search for the Thoughtful Gamer Guild and join up there so we can actually have members. I'm not 100% sure what to do with the guild because I usually just use Board Game Geek as an encyclopedia, but apparently things can happen. I'll announce things there and and put up polls or whatever. Um, So if you like the podcast, please join the guild. And then finally, if you prefer to listen to your podcasts on YouTube or just want to Subscribe to us on YouTube in case we're going to do video stuff some point in the future, probably not the near future, but I have imported all of the podcasts to YouTube, so subscribe to us there. Finally, be on the lookout if you're in the Boston area. I'm trying to schedule a thoughtful gamer board game day here at the apartment where we just play board games literally all day and, and drink and eat snacks. If we had thought about this, we would have come up with a cool name for our apartment, but alas, yeah. edit something in here. <laughs> edit something in for the name of our apartment? Yeah, when we have a brainstorm for the this. Game Center. No, that's horrible. Anyway, is it back to me on Skull? Oh, no, it's definitely my turn. I'm going to play... Uh, so, uh, in this chill cast, other than just card. faffing about and talking about Skull... Let's talk about some games we've been playing recently. So I just put up the review of Riftwalker, which is a fun little card game that is should not be played with four players. That's that's my takeaway. It's not good with four players. But as a two-player game, was actually really fun. I think, Matt, you liked it a lot, right? I Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I played a four-person, a three-person, a two-player. Uh, the two-player game was definitely the best one. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it every time. I guess I was learning when I played it four-person. Uh, but I enjoyed it every time. Yeah, I talked about this in my review, but it really surprised me because I don't... When I play games, I don't get surprised a lot anymore with mechanisms because they're all... A lot of them are interrelated, and that's not a bad thing. They're they're choosing good mechanisms. But Riftwalker was just weird in my head in that it was making me think in ways I hadn't thought before because the turn-by-turn play is very tactical, but you have to plan out actually scoring cards very far ahead of time yeah and you can read a lot more about this in my review but the coolest thing about the game is that there's this grid there's this resource grid that is shared by it's a three by three grid and it's shared by both players and you have to arrange the element cards in that grid to line up three in a row like tic-tac-toe in order to score any card of that color and it's a weird tricky puzzle and it it had a lot more depth to it than i had anticipated yeah it's just super interesting because you're using these elements or colors in the in the center. I bid three. Oh, oh. there are five cards oh. on the table. Ryan bids three. I will pass on that. Matt has a pained look on his face. Uh, this is this is tough. I think I can do four. Okay, you can you can go for four. <laughs> All right, he's going for four. I I have two. I'm safe. Um, Mark, give me your top one. Save. Um, yeah, Orion, turn yours over. Curses. Oh, oh, yes. He got it. And that's impressive because my last one was a skull. Yeah. Well done. No one has failed on a bid yet. 
Yeah, I wonder if with three players, this is more the norm. I don't. We played with what six players the other Something night. Something like that. And yeah. It was tough. It was really tough to go all the way around because the bids got high because there's so many people. Anyway, and it was worth saying. So anyway, in Riftwalker, you have this this central three by three grid. You have to use the elements to do things with your rifts. Right. You you flip cards. over an element to do an an action of that color. Yeah. Basically. So I think it, I think. All three times that I've played, the blue ones, the water ones, have been a part of my strategy. So I'm constantly flipping over the, these blue rifts, or sorry, the blue elements in the middle in order to get my rifts out there or shift them, which basically progresses them towards scoring points and lets you use their powers. But at the same time, I want lots of blue up on the center board so I can score them. Because you, you, need, you yeah. need three in a row of the color you want to score. When you start off the game, you, you're playing a card and you're like, ooh, I really want to score this card. But it may be 10, 15 turns until you're actually able to score that card. And the whole time you're playing other cards you want to score while manipulating the grid to try to score something. So yeah. you, while you may be working towards scoring that first card, the conditions may change after a while where you it's just not as good of a play anymore to score that card. And you want to shift towards scoring a different card. So it's simultaneously very strategic and very tactical. I think that's the best thing about it. Plus, all the players are manipulating the same 3x3 three three grid. So it's cha- constantly changing and you have to pay attention to what the other person or persons, what colors they're going for and maybe block them or be aware of what opportunities you're giving them. Yeah, which is cool, but it's also why it did not work well at four players because you, you have so little influence over the element grid that you can't it's you want to strategize down. it slowed the game down you want to strategize a lot but you can't it ends up being much more tactical and it didn't feel as satisfying one thing i noticed in the last game we played just you and me mark was um not only was i so originally i thought that the only thing you cared about was preventing your opponent from controlling it like an element line you know if if you obviously have red cards out there i want to prevent that combination right from coming up uh but but i actually found that at one point i just tried to get an a red card in scoring position for myself yes you can leech off which was super cool so i don't know i after three games i don't have a feel of whether or not this would stay fresh after 15 plays but right now it's really interesting I've got close to that, and it it does stay fresh. Like it, yeah. like I, I feel like I'm learning new things about the game each time yeah, I play. That's cool. Like I said in the review, I don't I don't collect these like short, quick two player card games, but I think this might be. I know I like Lost Cities a lot for, but for something more complicated, this I, I like it a lot better than Star Realms, for instance. Um, it, you say that, but you've collected at least four of those sorts of games. Yeah, right. but that's not you a have, whole lot. I have Star that, Realms. That's fair. I have Star Realms, which is pretty good. It's I have roughly Walker, I like a lot. Six Lost and a half Cities, I love of the games over there. Jaipur, I find is okay. Mott and I, I never quite could figure out. Yeah, it was just kind of weird. So the only two I actually really like, I think, are Riftwalker and Lost Cities. Yeah, that that's fair. and Star Realms is somewhere underneath that. I enjoy Star Realms, but it's it's fairly simplistic, I think. Right. Compared to the number of, you know, four-player Euro games, it's certainly dwarfed. Yeah. All right, I'm playing a card. All right, I'm going to play a card at random. What? Elite strats, guys. Play a random card in Skull. Chaos Mark. And then afterwards, look at what card you played. I got two. 
Oh, he's going for the win. There are three cards out here. He's betting two. Pass. I'll pass. Let's do this. Mark, turn over your card. It's a skull. Oh, what oh. are the chances? One out of four. The, Those the, chances, are the chances are exactly 25%. <laughs> All right. Well, you lose a card. Ah, those were those were great odds. Yeah, yeah. But if it was if it was an island, I would have said three. <laughs> I would have outbid you there. Anyway, that's Riftwalker. Uh, what else have we been playing recently? We just looked at Labyrinth: The War on Terror by. Okay. All right, one second. What? Oh. I'm fanning out my my cards. For oh, we're to this Don't one. Don't look at it. Yeah, only Matt can look at it. Okay. Matt has to play with one fewer card now. <laughs> now what happens? Uh, I don't know. Matt starts off bidding yeah. again. Or playing a card. Labyrinth. Let's talk about that. So that's a game we got recently. We were just looking at it, but couldn't quite get a game in today because I fell asleep. Um, yeah, Mark and I played this uh, a few weeks ago, I think. Yeah. And we, we started at around 11, and it took us till 3 in the morning or something. <laughs> it was it was great. Those are the best games. It's by... Is it by Volko or is it by Mark Herman? It's by Volko, right? Uh, yes? It's not a coin game, though. I'm 90% sure... I'm No, I'm like 98% sure it's by Volko, Renke. <laughs> well, regardless, it's a GMT war game, two-player war game, uh, card-based card-driven war game similar in play to you know your twilight struggle or washington's war which we'll get to in in a bit but uh you uh one side plays the u.s and one side plays the islamist jihadist and you're going back and forth playing cards in a, in a similar fashion to those sorts of games and you're trying to set up your different influence in the in various the various rele- relevant countries and establish your your uh your dominant governments and uh be able to try to control the control the state of the world it's interesting because it it postdates twilight struggle it was released in 2011 i believe or 2010 maybe in twilight struggles 2005 i think or 2004 somewhere around there but it's it's a much it feels like a much looser not as tightly controlled experience. I think the comment I said is that it feel Twilight Struggle feels much more like a very tight strategic game, like you closer to like even like an abstract game where there's standard openings, you have very very specific maybe it's just because the game's been studied more, but very specific plays and types of play. We've also played Twilight Struggle a lot more and read about it, read about the strategies yeah. for it. Labyrinth seemed a lot more narrative focused, so there were a lot more conditional cards, so cards that only activate if you've already played the event of a different card. And there's a whole lot more dice rolling, which was weird because you don't expect that a lot with these heavy war games, but especially the jihadists have to roll dice for everything they do, which makes sense, right? Because it's hard to be a terrorist and like cross a border, but Right. I I, th- I played that side uh, in our game, and every action I did, I rolled for, and it was at best a 50-50 for every move or recruit or coup or, you know, whatever, or plot, whatever that I, whatever I was trying to do, which made it frustrating, or it made it, it made it feel difficult to build up momentum towards something, and you could slowly, it just, it took a while to acquire the resources and the position to be able to do, make a big move and even when you tried to pull that off it was still questionable whether it would even succeed right which which succeeds in a simulationist 
kind of way. Oh, sure. Right? Because it's hard to execute a terror plot, but can be frustrating on a game level. But it has all these kinds of neat, again, simulations of real life where, like, everything the United States does basically detracts on their prestige, which makes it harder to do things generally um, because the rest of the world doesn't, you know, has a soft stance on the war on terror. The United States is trying to have a hard stance. If the U.S. wants to switch to a soft stance, uh, it takes a fairly significant amount of resources and time. And then they can't they can't do some of their actions like uh, they can't take over governments, basically. The regime change. Regime yeah. change, yeah. They can't, like, invade Afghanistan. So from that perspective of, like, reliving kind of the themes and ideas of the post-9-11 war on terror, it's I think it does a very good job. On a game level, it didn't seem quite as satisfying as other card-driven games. It's certainly not as tight as Twilight Struggle, which is just so streamlined, and there's a lot of reasons. Or even, or even the coin games. Sure. It was it was certainly fun, but it was... I think the most interesting part to me was watching how the prestige track went up and down and how you kind of battled back and forth on securing funding for the jihadists and trying to sabotage the U.S. prestige, whereas the U.S. is trying to do the opposite of that. Yeah, um, I definitely want to play it more. Well, now I have to play it more because I ran a Twitter poll asking which game I should review, which GMT game I should review next in Labyrinth 1. Even though it was trailing the whole time, and then it got like six votes in a row. Didn't it win by one vote? Like five to four to four or something? Yeah, I don't have many Twitter followers, so the vote vote total was small. But it did win, so we got to play it a few more times so I can get a first first impression review out. But I think it'll be very interesting to play multiple times. Yeah, yeah. It was certainly interesting. I want to try playing the other side, because I've only played the the one side. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I want to try playing the U.S. side. Uh, on the same lines, we have Washington's War, which is, I, I double-checked, Labyrinth is designed by Volko Runke, the guy who made the coin games, mm-hmm. and you can you can certainly see the influence there about how he kind of adapted his design here into the coin games in a lot of ways. Yeah, it had that same idea of having hidden auxilia or cells or whatever, gorillas. and then gorillas, yeah, and flipping them up to do some action, and then they're more vulnerable when they're... Well, it also does, has... does Labyrinth predate the coin games? Yes. Oh, okay. I, was, I, I didn't I was... realize those were all recent. Oh, yeah, no, the coin so, games... Some of the coin games must be before it. No. Really? The first coin game was Indian Abyss, Abyss about Columbia, and it was released in 2012. Aren't there, like, seven of those now? Yeah, they were releasing, like, two a year. Wow. All right. They're very popular. I'm just, I'm impressed with how quickly he shifts through different areas of history. Well, almost all of them have co-designers. Yeah, cool. To bring the historical part? Yeah, just to help out. Because, I mean, the core gameplay is the same across all of them. It's just tweaking the details and adding the historical parts. Right. Um, Creating all the events and stuff. And they're so popular that I'm sure he has people who just contact him and like, oh, can I please make a coin game about this? Mm-hmm. and he'll work with them on that. So, I mean, yeah, there's like seven released and already two more planned. We got Pendragon and Gandhi coming up next, I think. Mm-hmm. Pendragon being about the fall of somewhere in Britain. Well, Pendragon is uh, King Arthur. Oh, yeah. You know more about that. And then Gandhi, so uh, Indian independence. But anyway, I don't even know where I was. Washington's, Washington's War. Washington's War. Okay, real quick. predates um, Labyrinth. I got three on Skull. Oh. We each have two cards down. He's going three? I got three. I'll go four. 
Uh, you haven't scored yet. I'll, I'll pass on that. Um, do I think that I can hit five? No, I don't. Go ahead, Orion. It's all you. All right. I'm going to flip over these two. Oh, good. I did play Islands. <laughs> uh, now I have to flip over two more. The tension is palpable. If only I had a knife to cut it with. Uh, Matt, flip your bottom card. You have to go top to bottom. Oh, okay. Yep. Flip your top card then. <laughs> I mean, you can reconsider if you want. That's fine. Flip that one. It's All right, an bam. island. Easy. All right, one more. Mark's top one or Matt's card? Hmm. Mm. Matt lost a random card, which I don't know what it could be. If it was a skull, then he's completely safe, which is the one in four. If he's If he lost an island, which is more likely, this is a 50-50. And Mark is a one in four, so I think that's safer. We'll go with Mark. Woo! Well done. Ugh. Bam! Now we all have a mountain. Now we all have one point. We're not very aggressive with this bidding or with throwing skulls. So Washington's War is a game about the American Revolution. One side plays the colonial armies headed by George Washington, and the other side plays the British forces trying to bring their rebellious colony back into line. And it's got uh, some interesting mechanics where most of the game and the victory mechanics are all based on political control of these different cities to form majority control in the 13 colonies plus Canada. There's There's three cities in Canada, although one of them doesn't really matter for the scoring at least. You hear to hear first, folks. Canada doesn't matter. Sure. Oh, let me play a card here. Uh, here, there's a card. I just I visited with August Hess, who was back in today, after a year of being in Vancouver. Oh, nice. Oh, fun. Vancouver is nice. an awesome city. Yeah, he says it's it's very. He says it's great. Um, not a whole lot of like new economic stuff going because everyone's just kind of happy with what's going on. That that is an accurate description of Vancouver. Everyone's kind of happy. Yeah, yeah. and. It is the cleanest city I've ever been in. He also said that. Oh, yeah. You, you have to notice that. Corroborating it's, it's spectacular. evidence. Okay. It's almost too clean because when you're... when I, I, I remember I was back there when I was a teenager, maybe 10 years ago. And we were walking around the city and there was just no one around at that point in time. And it looked almost like too clean. Like, it, it gave off a weird vibe. Like, when there's no people and there's no, like, like Is there garbage. anyone living here? <laughs> yeah, it seemed too sterile. Is this... Which I guess is like, the best kind of insult you can is have. Is this a city. reaver city? Yeah, I don't... A reaver? The Serenity Planet city, right? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah the planet. About? I was thinking of, like, a reaver ship that's just full of carcasses. It, it can't be a, a zombie apocalypse, because then it's... No, I mean, I was going to say it's, post-apocalyptic, but you would imagine there'd be lots yeah. of garbage in that scenario, yeah. and there aren't any. Right, so that's the reaver scenario, where everyone just... The sterile, frozen city? Everyone just went to sleep where they were, indoors. Exactly. That's except, Vancouver. Except for the few people who decided to become cannibalistic <laughs> pirates. <laughs> Anyway, Washington's War. Right. Which does not have Vancouver in it. And it also does not have cannibals or pirates. Yeah, no pirates. Unless you count the French. Uh, They're kind of piratey. They blockade one area from and stop the British. Yeah, like pirates. No. They seem like, I mean, in my understanding of American history, they kind of seem like pirates. I can see that. Wasn't the War of 1812 started because... Either the British and or the French kind of let pirates roam about. 
and America got mad at it. I don't. I don't, I don't remember this. I, don't I wrote a thirty-page paper on this in college, and I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, the point is that at the time, Britain and France were very much antagonistic towards each other, both trying to establish and secure their colonial empires around the world. So whenever one got in a conflict, the other tended to jump in against them, which yes. happened in this war and would happen again, what happened 10, 15 years previously in the French and Indian War, or the, oh, I forget the other names for that war, um, and then again in 1812, I believe. Yeah, the French helped out there a yeah. bit. They were involved, at least. Yeah, yeah. So any, anyways, you uh, you go back and forth playing cards, and you can either activate or you can basically convert cities to your political alignment or you can try to move your armies around to secure areas or fight the the opposition's armies or you can uh bring in additional troops are the 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 main actions that you'll be doing bit of history about this game it is a re-implementation or updated version of the very first card-driven war game called We the People, which was released back in the early 90s, I believe, by Mark Herman, legendary board game or war game designer. And you can kind of tell it's like the first version or the first example of that style because it doesn't seem as tight. Like the mechanisms certainly get tighter in these later implementations that we talk about all the time, like Twilight Struggle or Labyrinth or any of the coin games. So yeah, it felt in Washington's war, once you start playing it, it's not very difficult. So it's not that heavy, but learning it took a bit of effort because there's just multiple actions and there's like exceptions for every category of action you can do. Yeah, I guess the rules weren't quite as streamlined, but it was an interesting game. I will say, if you are playing as the British, do not attack George Washington on turn one. That yes. was a bad idea in hindsight. George Washington is a very good general, <laughs> and he stomped us out of Boston. Yeah, he did. It was very bad. So did you guys get, do you get the same sort of historical experience that you do in in a lot of the other I felt less, less so in Washington's war, because it felt like the things you were doing were more separated from the historical events. Whereas the coin games and Twilight Struggle, as we keep mentioning, all the events you play are specific things from the war. And this, there were more generalized cards that didn't tie into any specific thing. Yeah, I mean, the the big difference is that in later implementations of these card-driven games, you have cards that have both operations values and events. And you generally have to choose one or the other. In this one, you have operations cards that only provide points. You have event cards, which only do events. And then you had this other type of card called major and minor campaigns. Yeah, and you so had those was, battle it cards. It was more, yeah, battle cards. Which were like a special type of event card. So there's a lot more randomness because each card pretty much only had one use. You could discard cards for like minor uses. So you could discard an action card for like one operations point, basically. But that means there weren't as many actual historical events being played out through cards. And it, I feel like, I'd have to see this over multiple plays, but I feel like your your hand that you draw, or, or like the randomness involved in drawing your hand affects you a lot more because there's it's slightly less flexible. Yeah, you could draw a hand where you can't activate any of your armies, so you're stuck just doing the other 
types of actions. Which I felt like it hurt me in that first game, probably because I wasn't playing very smart, but partially because I drew like two really good army moving around, you know, campaign cards in my first hand, and then I never saw one again the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try to fight back, but I really couldn't do that efficiently. Yeah, the other really interesting part is kind of this asymmetry in how the different factions used their operations. So the British had to use more operations to activate their armies, and but fewer to bring in their reinforcements, whereas the Americans had to spend more operations to activate there are uh, to act, to bring in reinforcements but they could bring in smaller stacks so they really wanted to spend their three ops to bring in reinforcements to get the most troops out per card and more of their generals could be activated with a one or two op card whereas the gen- the british generals were all two or three so it was interesting i felt it was weird in in some ways just i think just because of it's a less streamlined version of this genre and in that it, sense, it also has the physical moving armies around a map that like Labyrinth or Twilight Struggle doesn't have. Not as much. Oh, Twilight Struggle but, doesn't have at all. Labyrinth, you have troops that you can move around and deploy. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And the coin games you do, obviously. These are just standees instead of cubes. I will say the map is beautiful, though. It's yep. it's easily one of my favorite maps we got we have out of a board game. It looks really good. The other unique part in this is that you have all these generals who have their own unique set of stats of how good they are at strategy, how good they are at combat, and how good they are at uh, basically retreating or yeah, how much of a coward they are. No, no, no. It's called their agility rating, and it's how good they are at ambushing or retreating yeah. or inflicting in, uh, casualties even when they lose. There's Benedict Arnold who starts yep. on the U.S. side, and there's one. I think only one particular card in the deck you can get him to become a traitor yep which is exciting mm-hmm. the events seemed a lot more impactful in this than in other versions just there because were, i think there were fewer of there them. were definitely fewer of them yeah like i remember playing the declaration of independence which was pretty crushing oh that card was brutal okay matt let's give you an idea with a three ops card which is the highest ops card in the game okay as the british or as either side you can place three political influence markers which is good. The Declaration of Independence card says place one political influence marker on each of the 13 colonies. <laughs> it was insane. But I guess, you know, it is the so Declaration. So it's only, it's only like a handful of cards that do these things. But when they come up, it's going to be game, I'd say, what, a quarter changing. of the cards maybe are events? Yeah, something like that. Some of them, like that one, are extremely influential um, I also pulled the Ben Franklin to France card, which basically secures half of the French alliance, which was pretty pretty big. Yeah, it's my relative betraying me. <laughs> um, I-, I liked the feeling of the British having this standing army that kind of stays around and the Americans maneuvering around it and trying to figure out how to deal with it because every year the American armies bleed away and they lose about half their strength and they have to re-recruit back up and before they can fight again. Whereas the British are more concerned with finding winter quarters and then they keep their entire army stack intact in, in and then can initiate the next year's campaign. Yeah, I like that part. I like that the generals each have their own stats, which plays into it a lot. I like that the British really have to focus on holding ports so they can actually have a port to import to to get new troops from. 
Yeah, you really have to use that advantage of you control the seas because you have the British Navy and you can move between ports and all ports are basically con- you know always controlled for you. So yeah, um, I think I think the general takedown is that it's less streamlined, less tightly constructed than later implementations of the card-driven war games. The thematic parts are really good, I think. So the event cards and the generals and all that. But they're, the more they're few and far between, though. Yeah. And the more abstracted parts, like just playing operations cards or just the, the political control in general, isn't as interesting in it as in the later games. Yeah. That's my takeaway. But what we definitely got to play more. What do you know of 1776? Is that... That is not a GMT game. That's in the same line as the 1812 game. Okay. By, was that Academy Games? I think they're all the same sort of system. I, Have I you don't, played 1812? No, I don't know. I, I've been... Oh, we got to play that. I, I've skipped most of these, both GMT and the, the other series of yeah, games. Yeah, we got we to... Even though they're super interesting, and I look at, like, I looked through Labyrinth today with Orion and looked at the cards. It looks super cool. I mean, in the same way that Twilight Struggle simulates the feeling of the Cold War incredibly well labyrinth looks like it simulates the you know the the gulf war slash the, the war on terror the, the war on, yeah, on war terror. terror not the gulf war yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. super interesting to me even if i haven't found the time to play them 1812 is more dudes on a map risk style yeah, okay. combat stuff it's a lot sillier a lot of just rolling dice and things happen and by things happen you mean your troops desert yeah, it's there's, about there's more it's about desertion. a fifty-fifty whether you will you know do damage, do nothing, or run away. <laughs> there's more desertion in that game than any war game I've ever played, and it's hilarious. Yeah, it is best played when drunk. I would advise. <laughs> yeah, I've never um, heard that about a war game before. I think it's well, I think it's the lightest one in the series. Okay, um, and I think they get a bit more serious and a bit more historical. From yeah. what I understand, though, Academy Games is all about education. And they'll do, they like release like for teachers, like game, like lesson plans and stuff around their games, Yeah, which I think is really awesome. I just learned about that the other day. Really, My biggest exposure to this series is uh, my sister who enjoys playing games. I I keep getting her games for Christmas and birthdays. She has like a a history buff friend who doesn't own a lot of games, but he owns 1776 and he loves getting it out. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we got to play 1812. It only takes like, what, an hour and a it's, quarter, maybe? It's pretty short. It's yeah. pretty short. All right, one more new game I want to talk about. Oh, wait, is, is it my turn to go I and think Skull? Skull's to I you. I think it's to Orion. What? I the, have two down. He has two oh, down. Oh, it's to, it's to me. I'm sorry. Uh, I will do this. I'll do that. Now we all have two down. All right. One more game that we've been playing recently or that we got recently that I want to talk about, and that's Venus. Have we? Have I told you about Venus at all, Matt? No, you didn't told, play. You've told me like three times, and I opened up the box and looked at it. Oh, even though I haven't played any of the new games, you have. You've looked. At I've them. looked at them all. <laughs> Venus was Venus really looks great. weird. Venus has grids in it, and it's amazing. More games need grids and like charts and columns and all that because they're awesome. I li- yeah, I like Venus a lot. I thought the most unique part of that is the action grid, where you can take you there's uh nine actions in the game laid out in a three by three grid so you put your pawn your action pawn on one of them that you're going to take and then when you're going to take another action you have to move it to a different space and if you go to an adjacent space it's free and if you go to a farther away space you have to pay money to move over there 
And if someone's already on the space, you have to pay them to go there. Right. And there's a yearly tax that rotates through. So some spaces are more expensive on a certain round of the game. Huh. Yeah. So that part's cool. You only take 12 actions in the entire game. Yeah. You play six years and two actions each year. Which for a big game that took, what, two, two and a half hours, you'd, you'd think... So what's an action in this game? Is like how many Some of them things are pretty going... simple. Yeah? It's just figuring out what you want to do. I mean, is there a lot of staring at the board in this game? Yeah, but it's the fun kind of staring at the board. Because everyone's right. trying to work right. out the puzzle and trying to figure things out and trying to calculate. The way I was thinking of describing it is that some games... You're building an engine, and you construct an engine, and you let it go, and you got, like, the gears turning, and everything's going, and you feel really good. Some games, like, the game's going, and the engine's going, and you're just trying to keep up. In Venus, it feels like it's, like, halfway in between that, and that the game is moving along real fast, but at the same time, you're trying to construct the game and construct your engine while... You're within the gears of that construction. That's what it felt like to me. I would put it more on the the second side of the the game is moving along and you're trying to keep up than the engine building. But there was a lot of freedom in the game. There's a lot of freedom to pursue yeah. different strategies. Right. And um, like some of the actions you could go through with the whole game and just ignore completely and just not do that thing. Yeah, that was the other really interesting part is that there are three to four major ways of getting victory points at the end and you can completely ignore one of the areas and focus on the other two and still do fine so i guess what i'm saying is is it's simultaneously very tight and very efficient in that you can only do 12 actions but at the same time it's kind of sandboxy it's it has a very unique okay. feeling to it, it in that it, way it's, it's tight in that you only get so many actions but it also has certain things that happen every year automatically for you so you don't have to spend actions on producing that just happens so you right. spend actions on setting up your estate and then the production phase happens at the end of the year and you get all the great you harvest all the grapes that you set up basically and you make the wine so compared to say viticulture which is much more of an engine builder right where you're trying you're you've got to plant your fields and get all your workers and then you can go harvest make grapes fill wine orders and yeah. do that to get your victory points. This is more about putting all the pieces in place and letting the game happen. Yeah. So, for instance, you could focus on building up a really awesome vineyard that makes really high-quality grapes. And that seems like a legit strategy. You could focus on making a bunch of, of wines off of a bunch of vineyards that are all low-quality. And that seems like a legitimate strategy. There's a fair that happens three times throughout the game where your wine is graded and you get points based on various factors in influencing the judges. Or you could ignore the fair completely, and that still also seems like it could be a decent strategy. You could sell your wines for money, or you could just manipulate your banking structure, and both ways seem like decent ways of getting money. You can focus on getting... You can kind of export victory. a bunch of wine. You can export and, wine for bunches of points or yeah. ignore that and instead focus on getting multipliers for different aspects of the game. And both of those things seem like good strategies. Yeah, so, we're saying all this based on one play. Obviously, we don't know what ideal strategies are, but it seems like there's a lot of viable options or yeah. paths that you could take. And, and more importantly, paths that you don't have to take. 
like a lot of these big Euro games, it it always to me it sometimes seems like they're trying to get you to do everything. Like a lot of the Feld games are like that, right? Yeah. Like Amerigo, you try to you kind of want to do a bit of everything well. Yeah. And in Castles of Burgundy, same kind of thing. In this one, you don't have to do everything well. It's I think it's probably well, maybe you could do a strategy. I kind of did I win that or. I won that one. You won game, by right? a couple points. I, think I won it, it, and I kind of did a bit of everything. Yeah. But I think I could have done better if I had focused more on certain things. Yeah, maybe it, so. It, it provides a lot of flexibility that way, and I think that's going to be the fun part, is exploring one thing I'm very distinct strategies. I'm interested about, do you block people out? Do you feel blocked by what other people are doing? Or is it the kind of game that... You can block yourself into a corner where it can be hard to do things because you can run out of money, basically, or run out of cash, I should say. But you don't, like, strictly block someone from doing something. You'll just make it slightly more expensive for them or less efficient. Yeah, I never felt like I was blocked. I tried tried blocking Orion, but he had a different plan that I didn't see to, to sell wines. Or yeah. to export wines. The uh, the blocking part is you can you can block people on the multipliers is probably the one area where you can block. And people. the exporting, because there's oh, this is this I I love this for no reason. There's a grid for exporting your wines. There's a spot for different qualities. So think of like the bottom left is like a seven, and then the next two off of that corner are eights, and then nines, and then tens, and elevens, twelves, thirteen, like in a square. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you export those wines, you get victory points based on the column. Based on the row. You get based on the you row. Get you get immediate points victory points. Based on the row. But then the columns, as you go right, give increasing number of points to the person at the end of the game who has sold the most wines in that column. Which okay. thematically represents a country. Okay. You'd have to see it, I guess, for it to make more sense. But it's really cool. Yeah, so it it has this concept of some points are scored immediately and some are at the end of the game. So the exporting is a combination of both. So in other words, you could, if you had like a nine value wine, you could get more points on the left column immediately. Or you could get fewer points immediately going farther into one of the rightmost columns. But you're setting yourself up for potentially more points total at the end of the game. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, it's so, another another game we need to play again. We need to play it. And then we got to flip it over and play the 2016 version, which apparently streamlines it and makes it a bit easier. So Seems like you should play that first. No, we're hardcore. I told her right now, like, we're not playing the easy version first. We're going to play the full game. We do that? Yeah, you, we do that with We do that game. all the time. I mean, I don't really care. I'm happy playing the easy version or the... Or the hard version, but I don't think you've ever picked the easy version. No. I have too much pride for that. Anyway, Venus is very I'm not going to disagree with you. All right. Is it my turn on Skull? No, it's, it's oh, so Matt's Ryan's. turn. I'm going to bid. Wait, it's Matt's turn. What? No, just two cards. Two cards out. Oh, did you start? Yes, I just scored. Last oh, time. you're going to bid. Okay, remember? okay. We have all three. scored. Three. So three. the next person to successfully bid and turn cards over wins. We each have two cards down in this round. Orion bids three. I, I bid three. I bid four. Fine. Fine with four? No, fine. I'm not going five. Orion, you win five. Do you think Mark... Because yeah, if Mark can do it... I win. He wins. I win the prize. 
which is probably me standing up and going to the fridge and getting a beer. Which I hadn't thought of all that much before I passed. Um, I'm at four, right? Yeah. All right, let's go five. You're going five? We're going five. Oh, crap. All right, let's go one. Wait, 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 wait. What? I could go six. Oh, okay. All right. Would you like to go six? I would like to go six. All right. Well, I can't go any higher. It's me. Flip them over. Oh, well, Ryan. <laughs> you were going to sack yourself? I wasn't going to let you win. I'd rather discard a card than let you win. Oh, this is where the game gets good. <laughs> well, you got to flip over yours, man. No, I don't. You hit a skull. Oh, you're going to hold it back? There's some poker shenanigans here. I'm not going to... Sh- Matt has hidden information. I haven't, I haven't oh, flipped over any. that's true. Any I should have flipped over your second. Huh. Yeah, okay. No right. beer for you, Mark. No beer. Not yet. All right. That's Venus. Let's run down a bit of the future and talk about what's on the way in terms of pre-orders because I have been... I went on a spurt for a while of just pre-ordering games from GMT and they're all coalescing into a similar release schedule. Well, a couple of them are. So, I calculated all of our pre-orders together. I, you haven't pre-ordered anything, have you met Kickstarter or no? I think GMT? I think I have chickened out on all of the games that I was considering pre-ordering. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. So, <laughs> there are two main ways to pre-order. I, I was. We'll talk about it later. With board games, there's Kickstarter where everyone is going to now. And GMT, which we talk about all the time because we love their games, has the P500 system, which if you haven't heard of it, is their in-house pre-order system. And basically how it works is that they'll put out a game onto P500. Once it gets around 500 pre-orders, they start the process of actually producing the game. Right. And that's that's like their break even point. Yeah, they'll do another print run of that game once enough people say they want it, basically. Yeah, um, so they know they're always going to make some amount of money from it, and they just print the games that are what people want. And it's a fantastic system because they sell it at a cheaper price than their normal uh, MSRP price. And at some point, they do a sale for everyone who has P500 something that year. So that's exciting. So right now, in chronological order... On pre-order, we have my most excited, anticipated release of 2017, Near and Far, which should be here literally any day. Someone on Twitter, I don't remember who it was, made me very mad. It's not their fault. Because they're like, oh, Near and Far just showed up at my door. And man, the box is really heavy. Like, no! (laughs) Don't say that I haven't gotten it yet. Although I'm excited that it's apparently a big, heavy box full of lots of wooden bits and pieces and stuff. So that's always exciting. Uh, For those who don't know, Near and Far is kind of a sequel to Above and Below, Ryan Lockett game, Red Redmond games. And it's an exploration campaign game. And that's basically all I know about it. Set in the same world as Above and Below. It has like a three, twice as big or three times as big storybook as Above and Below and it's supposed to be super cool, and I'm excited. I deliberately don't read ahead much about... Like, the rule book has been out for Near and Far for a long time, and I kind of scanned it, but I don't look ahead that much. If it's anything like, like Above and Below, it's not going to be hard to pick up. And, and I think it's going to be heavier, for is, sure. is it going to be heavier? Okay. Oh, yeah, I think so. So much of the joy of those games is just experiencing it. Like, with, with Above and Below, it's one of the games I feel least strategic about because it's just so fun to experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, and near and far, the one thing I did see, though, is that the map is a book. So you literally get to the end of the map and you turn the page for the next segment of the map. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a big, uh, like, spiral-bound book. Yeah. So you turn over oh, and wow. you get a new double-page landscape to explore. Yeah. Does this like, mean you're all exploring together? You yeah. You know that? I oh, think it's... Okay. I don't know if it's competitive or cooperative, actually. I think it's cooperative. Oh, um, I love it. And you have, like, character stats you keep track of and you, like, you know, write down things that affect your characters and you could do, like, a full campaign or you can do, like, a mini sessions or you could do there's like rules for a, like one standalone game there's like three different ways you can play it or okay something. on air i want to say you can't play this campaign it's a campaign right yeah the full game is a the campaign. full game is a campaign can't play this without me like you did on the last campaign game that you got what was that imperial assault oh well that was tra- you gotta come over that was a tragedy you have to actually come here and play with us i will come yeah I will come from you. Bring, bring Amber. She might like it. I think she'd love it. Actually, I don't know. I don't no. think she could commit to the yeah. campaign, though. If we build it, will you come? I'll come. Okay. And by it, I mean a new game table to play near and far on. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got to build our game table. That's coming up for the Thoughtful Gamer. We yeah, that is build exciting. Our own table. I've got some plans put together. Um, I'll put those up once they're finalized. But uh, And if, is, if I'm successful in building it. Is it going to have Bluetooth? could but i that wasn't in the initial version of the plans we're gonna have outlets on it right there there will be outlets will it walk it will not walk it will not be a transformer okay it will not be it will transform in some sense I, i'm gonna put a a fold down dm desk at one end oh beautiful yeah yes we're okay gonna, I gonna, will... we're gonna put cup holders if you so there if will you be build... less spillage yes so if you build people... a gm portion into the table i will dm oh boy really absolutely will you allow me to record it absolutely yes i mean D&D it might, it might gonna do some other part of me wants to do star wars again but part of me wants to do dnd see the I've thing heard is the new star wars the force of destiny i think it's called the fantasy flight rpg I've i'll heard check it out i've heard it's really I'll check good it out. If, dnd would be a lot of fun but i would want to put a lot more work into kind of customizing our world into something we'd like Whereas Star want, Wars is just, it's Star Wars. If you want my super secret notes about my world and where I was going with that, you can adopt it. Yeah, but then I'd have to write you in as some kind of like demigod who knows what's going on. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I would. Which could be interesting. Which could be. Or annoying to everyone else. You, you guys watch. You could the... be some like half insane sage or something. I could. I could do the uh, the thing you had, the wild magic burst. Yeah. That's super <laughs> yeah. fun. Where you have to make a, a check before you can say anything. Do you guys watch the C Team at all? Or have you watched the C Team? No. I watched like five minutes of one episode. Oh, it's so good, guys. Yeah. It's so good. For you, those of you who don't know, it's Penny Arcade, the webcomic, has been doing for years this thing called Acquisitions Incorporated, which is a long running D&D game with, collaborated with uh, Wizards of the Coast. And the C Team is a spin off of that. Where one of the characters from Acquisitions Inc. is kind of, in some sense, DMing the game. Like, the same guy is DMing it, and his character is also manipulating a lot of the things in the game. And it's just, it's the best RPG. Like, I I think I enjoy it better than Acquisitions Inc. All of the people get along really well, and all the characters are really fascinating. And Jerry's great at DMing, and the story's cool, and it's hilarious. 
if anything, you have to watch the episode where Patrick Rothfuss makes a guest appearance. Yeah. And one of the characters is this old grandma monk, like with a staff in like hand-to-hand combat. But she's like a monk halfling who's like 120 years old or something. So she's just this little tiny grandma, but she she's like the the brawler of the group. <laughs> and Pat comes in and plays her son named Drebus, who is like her adult son, who's just a moron, and is like a supposed to be like this forty year old half orc. <laughs> Wait, is she an orc? No, she's a halfling. Oh, okay. She gets around, so she got around with an orc. Oh, okay. That's what that's a running joke of the of the C team. Okay. You know, 40, 50 years ago, and produced Drebus. The idiot half-orc? He's not so much as an idiot, is that he's a grown adult orc, half-orc, who acts like a moody 16-year-old teenager. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and has the intelligence of one. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. How many episodes in? Because they're not that far in. Like 10 or 11 in. Okay. Uh, every... Thursday night at 6.30 Eastern, they stream it on Twitch, and then they'll everything's on Twitch and YouTube, like all the recordings. It's great. If you haven't experienced the wonders of Trevor the werewolf, you have to do that. Trevor's just a good good boy werewolf, just wants to get along with people. <laughs> all right. Anyway. Anyway, I, yeah. I don't know where we were. Oh, well, near and far. Near and far, and then game tables. <laughs> then tables. We have a sweet table, so I'm gonna Amber, my wife, won't be embarrassed by the pictures I put on the website. That's her one comment about the website is that she every time I post pictures that I take of like game pieces, she doesn't like that uh, the table's all scratched up because her table's oh, the really table. scratched up. The table, yeah. yeah. You say the lighting isn't. Uh, we're not here to bash anybody. Oh, I'm terrible at taking yeah, pictures, but you're great at like framing things and understanding framing of shots and stuff. Yeah, I just don't have a good camera, and the lighting in here is awful. Yeah. Someday when I'm actually able to make money from this, I'll the literally number one on my list is lighting. All right, all I need right, to buy right. more lighting gear. I don't know anything about it, so I lighting don't know what is, makes it good or bad. Lighting is the single most important thing of photography or video. That makes sense, given it's all light. Photograph. It's all sense. photons and light and physics stuff. It, we're it, waiting for Mark to play a card. Oh, I'm talking about awesome things that you guys don't like. Uh, I'll play this, that card. Wait, this is your discard, right? Oh, did I? I never discarded a oh, card well, after losing. Jeez, Mark. That was the first card I played. I'll replicate if possible. There's my discard under the phone. All right. All right. Okay, now it's back to you. Okay. All right, you played two cards. I played two cards. Next on the list. So Near and Far should be here any day. In mid-June, we should get 1960, The Making of the President. That is the follow-up from Jason Matthews after Twilight Struggle about the 1960 presidential election between Nixon and Kennedy. And I saw the new pictures of it, and it looks super fun. It's supposed to be much lighter than Twilight Struggle. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Then in... Oh, wait. Hold on. It's my turn on this game. Yep. We all have two cards out. You going to bid? I'll bid three. 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 Uh, Is it me next? It's to me. Um, four. Uh, I will pass. I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> Matt had the skull right on top of his stack. Matt loses card number two. Anyway, 
After 1960, in late June, at least according to the GMT website, is another P500 I have for Colonial Twilight, which is the first two-player coin game, which I'm very excited about, about the French-Algerian War. But I'm mostly excited that it's two players, so me and Orion can play it without having to rope in other people. Yep. That's basically it. Some people There's been a... Uh... A large want to play games with us. There's been a large uptick in the amount of two-player games that have been happening recently. Yes. <laughs> as the game gets, as the games get heavier, it's harder to get. Some people have lives, more girlfriends. <laughs> don't want to play it's games true. in our dark game room. I don't think I'm the target love, of that one. <laughs> I love the game room. It's nothing against the game room. Uh, anyway, Colonial Twilight is after that. Then in August, I will be getting, at least according to the schedule, I'll be getting Gloomhaven, which will be a big event. I told you guys about Gloomhaven. Right? Oh, I'm pumped yeah. for Gloomhaven. Yeah, Gloomhaven. I, that was my biggest disappointment of PAX, is that I didn't get to test play Gloomhaven. Was that there? Uh, wasn't it? We were we were trying to play Meximinions. Uh, there, there was the, Am uh, I thinking of Thornwatch? Thornwatch, probably. Thornwatch. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, I haven't pre-ordered Thornwatch, but it should be out in this year, I think. That's another campaign. That's another one. Yeah, we have a lot of campaign games. Pa- when's Pandemic Season Two coming out? Sometime. Okay. It, my priority is Pandemic Season Two. Far. Uh, near and far. Near and far. Thornwatch. Those three are like I want to play all three of those. And okay. then, uh, what would Havenfall? You said. Gloomhaven? Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven. Yeah. Okay, convince me otherwise. Gloomhaven I, I, don't, has, I think those has gone into really the good. BGG top 10 faster than I think any game ever. Wow. I think. It's already at like 6 or 5. Oh my gosh. It got a it got a perfect 10, 10 out of 10 score from Tom Vassell, and he only played solo. And he never... He, he makes fun of people who play solo games. Wow. It looks like a slightly legacy huge like a hundred sessions long campaign game okay like descent but bigger and more epic and with choose your own adventure style stuff but the combat is all card driven i think like mage knight so it's supposedly much more strategic and much more tactical rather than relying on a lot of dice i don't think there are any dice in gloomhaven Okay. Well, that's interesting. And there's like 25 different characters. And basically, I think as you go throughout the campaign, your characters like rise and then retire. And then you take over like their apprentices or something. So it's like multiple generational things. Uh, could, uh, it, if, and there's a giant map done to well, explore. Which, if it's sixth in BGG already, it probably has. That could be incredibly epic. I, I'm trying to not read too many things to try to not get my hopes up too high but if it's i mean i've said for a very long time if there's one game that i would like to be a legacy game it's mage knight and if oh, this that is, makes perfect sense and if this is actually mage knight legacy basically i will be through the roof oh if it's that then i would i'd feel better about mage knight instantly if it were legacy because a lot of the problems i had with mage knight where it just felt i feel like you don't get to do as much as you should do well in the an interesting game very like quick, that. right you're leveling yeah. up you're you're basically leveling leveling up an you entire can, you can D&D barely character. even explore the map in mage knight i feel like it's it's so expensive to do anything and you build yeah. up a deck and i love deck building but then you only go through it like three times or something six times six times uh, 
I didn't play Don't it very be much. Don't Mage Knight. Look, I mean, of all the you games, already know of all well, the games we've ever played, it, that was maybe the biggest discrepancy between how you you two felt about it and how I felt about it. I and, and I love Mage Knight, and I love Vlada games. I I mean, Vlada is is amazing. I mean, I think, but but there's so many different types of Vlada and I games. I love them all except Mage Knight. <laughs> and meanwhile, Mage Knight is my favorite of his. Yeah, I didn't get it, but but that sort of like deck building character. I don't know if Gloomhaven has the deck. It'll have decks, but I don't think okay. I don't know if it does deck. Okay, I would imagine it does deck building for like new loot and stuff. I I don't know. Yeah, again, I haven't read a whole lot about it, but that's it. Could be really cool in a legacy game where I wouldn't feel like you have to do as much in one game because. From what I've read, it's very lightly legacy. Like I think, as you explore the map, you sticker things. Okay, and those even so, and that becomes the location of certain things. But you can then just go through a game again, and then those are the locations, or you can just find a temporary solution for that. Okay, I don't think it's it's not heavy heavy legacy like Pandemic was. Sure, sure. Okay. But anyway, you should be pumped about Gloomhaven. But if you're not, it'll be easier time to get to the table because we won't have to drag you over here. I'm sorry. I'm being really mean to you <laughs> well, in this podcast. It goes both ways. Speaking of dragging people to the table, the next one on the list for pre-orders is one Orion has pre-ordered from GMT again, and that is the epic Protestant Reformation game Here I Stand, which is having its 500th anniversary reprint. And what? By that, it means the 500th anniversary of... Martin Luther posting the 95 theses. Get stoked. Not the ninety, not the 500th anniversary of the game. I'm not even kidding. Uh, last Sunday, went out to lunch. We had a conversation about how we were going to celebrate the Reformation. It might involve us going around nailing things to doors throughout Boston. That sounds so, like something you'd get arrested for. Maybe, maybe, but it happens once every 500 years, so... Yes, the 500th anniversary of things do happen once every 500 years. (laughs) And I got it on P500, so there's that. Beautiful. Yeah, there we go. So that's, according to the most recent GMT update, that'll be here in September. Finally, rounding out the year for pre-orders, so far at least, is another Ryan Lockett game, because I'm just going to get every game he makes from now on, I think. I don't know. I just pre-order them on Kickstarter, and then I forget about them, and then I remember about them again. I'm like, oh, that seemed like a good decision. It's Empires of the Void 2, which is the sequel to his very first game, but not a sequel in, like, an update. A sequel in, like, he just decided to make an entirely new game that's basically the same theme. It's supposed to be a light 4X, so it's supposed to be, like, a two-hour 4X game set in space. We'll see how it is. Again, I haven't looked at uh, much of it. Cool. Um, I like 4X and I Ryan like Ryan Lockett makes good games, so... That's a hard area to, to do well. Like, kind of two-hour... Two-hour 4X game? I don't know if anyone's ever done it successfully. I mean, it'd be awesome, but... Like, yeah. all, all the all the 4X games we play are, like, Eclipses six hours. and around six, yeah. Five or six. For Clash us. of Cultures, three or four hours? You could get it closer to two, but... You could do Clash of Cultures in two, but I think in doing that, it strips away a lot. Yeah, Clash, it's it's probably, I'd say it's probably a three-hour game. Yeah, I can't think of any. I've heard the GMT Space Empires 4X is fairly short, but I don't think it's two hours. I think it's more like four. There's another game I can't remember the name of that I've heard spoken of as the light 4X game, and it's a space one. But I do not, 
I think it's, is it Exodus Primus Centauri? I think that might be it. Don't, don't hold me on that. Anyway, if Empires of the Void 2 is actually a good two hour 4X game, then I'll be super excited. If not, it's probably going to be a good game anyway. All right. Anticipation time. Oh, wait, we have Skull going on? Yeah. So we each have one card on the table. And you only have two cards remaining, right? I only have two cards remaining. It's all I need. in a bad position. It's all I need. It's all you need, okay. Two. You're going to go two? I'm bidding two. What's she going to do? There are only th- there's only one card from each of us. There are only three right, cards on this three. table. Orion goes three. I guess Ooh. you can't bid more than that. <laughs> nope. All right, I'm flipping mine. It's an island. I'm flipping Mark's. It's an island. I'm flipping Matt's. Or he's flipping his. It's an island! Ah. Orion wins! Orion Come back, wins victory! First time ever playing! Woo. That was... Why'd you bid two, Matt? I was counting on you guys on throwing skulls. No, I, I've, been, I've been putting skulls as my second card lately. Now I know your strategy. Yeah, my elite skull strats. Well done, Orion. Hooray. That was successful. Good job. Yeah. So there you go. You can play Skull with Magic the Gathering land cards during a podcast. Where can't you play Skull? That's a, good, that's a better question. I don't it, think... Maybe you couldn't play it in a swimming pool? No, oh. you, 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 I have waterproof cards. Oh yeah, those Boom. floating waterproof. Yeah, yeah you could. Yeah, you play it in a swimming pool. I don't. In, in a cave with no lighting. Could you play it in space? Are you allowed to bring spacesuits? <laughs> sure. We'll we'll assume that you're not going to instantly die from being in space. That yeah, you're in some sort I'm of. Yeah, you have to be very careful suit. about letting go of the cards so right. they don't rotate. Yeah. There you go. They'll just float there right in front of you. Or we can assume you're in some sort of spacecraft. I don't know. There you have it. You can play Skull both in a swimming pool and in space. What a versatile game. All right, guys. I looked down a list I randomly found on BoardGameGeek about most anticipated 2017 releases. Here are the ones that have not been released yet. The Seventh Continent. This is a... I think it's entirely a choose-your-own-adventure game. The pitch for this game is it has, like, thousands of cards. And it's all cards, I think. And it's choose your own adventure style narrative thing, and it has some. It apparently, has some unique way in which you can save your game really easily. I don't. I didn't. I didn't back it on Kickstarter. It's. I think it launched on Kickstarter like two or three years ago. It's been a long time in the coming, but it could be interesting. We'll see. Pandemic Legacy Season Two, which Matt is super stoked for. Oh, buddy, is that <sighs> kind of people guessing that's going to be in the fall or the later this year or Seventh Continent? No, no, no. Pandemic. Oh, I think... Is there like Essen? a target? I oh, think Essen's Essen? like November, October, November, right? I think they, they said one of the conventions... I don't think it's Gen Con. That's just in a month or two, right? Yeah, that's... Uh, Maybe it like is Gen months. Con. I think they said one of the big conventions, either Gen Con or Essen. I think it's Essen. Okay. I think Essen is October? That sounds Maybe right. Maybe November? Somewhere around okay, there. Yeah. So yeah. end of the year. Okay. All right. Uh, for season two. That means we have time to play Near and Far first. Well, time to play other games. I don't know. We busted out Pandemic Legacy Season 1 in what? We did at least two or three games each session. So what, five we, sessions? I think we got it done in about two weeks of time. Yeah. So Wait, I imagine two this weeks will be similar. Time? Wasn't it like two weeks of calendar time? Or did we have a big lag? There might have been a big gap somewhere in did the We fall. played it? No. It took us like three months. There was a, there was like a, a there was one big gap at the end, but no, we played it we played it consistently like once or twice a week. Yeah, two or three games each. We ended up playing what sixteen games total. Yeah, 
something like that. What I've seen though in season two, they're 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 not going to be like remaking the game. Like they're I. In other words, I think they're making big big changes and big risks. And, so it's, uh, it's not just going to be pandemic with things happening with a different story at this time. No, I, I mean. Have you guys seen the map for it? No. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, just it. just the back anything. of the box that has the fog of war. It looks like. Have you? I seen, haven't. I haven't seen anything. Do you? Do you mind if I spoil a bit? Uh, go for it. It's not a map of Earth. Ooh. Oh, I think well, I've you, no, you told me that it takes place on Earth. Does it? It's not a map of the globe. It's a map of like an island. Yeah. It looks to me like, and from the the story blurb that it it's like. The pandemic happened, and you are like a colony somewhere that's oh. ready to... So you're like an island in the Pacific or something like that? Something like that. But you're ready to re-explore the, the world like 40 years later. Oh, so it's a post-apocalyptic thing? That's my impression. Ooh. I could be wrong. Okay, that gets me more excited about it. Because I think I was, a, I was the least enthused about... And I love Pandemic Legacy. I think you guys loved it even more than I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talk about this so. in the podcast, I think, for next week. Oh, yeah, but... the one we've recorded but haven't released yet. Right. And yeah. we we kind of talked about how, as a gaming experience, it was just fantastic. And as a game, there's maybe more things to pick at it because it's still a pandemic. And yeah. I know you don't like that base game as, as much. It's okay. I think it's it's okay. Anyway, season two this year. Uh, the third one I have on here is the legacy game I am looking more forward to than Pandemic Legacy Season 2, and that is Charterstone. I have never heard of Charterstone. Charterstone is the next Stonemeyer game, creators of Viticulture and Scythe. Oh, yeah. It's the, like the builder on Viticulture, right? I don't, I don't think it's wine-themed, but it's, well, it's, okay. it's a Euro game, I think, an economic Euro game in which... You'd go through the legacy portion, and at the end, you just have a game that you just play. But it's all unique, oh, and I man. think that's awesome. I'm really excited. If they can pull it off. That seems like it'd be a logistical nightmare to design. I, I'm torn about this, because for some reason, that doesn't sound as good as Pandemic Legacy or Gloomhaven to me. Well, but I Gloomhaven, love, like, I, may, I may be more excited about Gloomhaven, but... On a conceptual level, I that excites me a lot. That you you actually end yeah. up with a full fledged game. But I love these Stonemeyer games. Yeah, the Stonemeyer they do Scythe great stuff. Is, I think I was mad at you for not liking Scythe more than you do. And I put Scythe at what thirtieth of all time. Yeah, Scythe and Rebellion. Anyway, Charterstone. I'm excited about First Martians, the sequel, semi sequel to Robinson Crusoe. Oh yes. With the app, it's going to yes. be great. I'm so excited. It looks really cool. Oh, if I remember correctly from the from the images, instead of like in Robinson Crusoe, you have the one hex and you expand out to other hexes. It's got like this ring thing where you explore out from your base, like in, in a radius. Oh, that's so much better than starting at one end and having to move your camp across the island. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes sense on a desert island that you start at the edge of the island. We talked about this before, but <laughs> the fact that they're putting a lot of it on the app is both exciting and potentially disappointing. I don't know. I love cards. It could hurt the experience and make the experience really streamlined. I don't know. Maybe we'll... I think it'll be great. Maybe we'll feel like we kind of wish we have had a giant deck of cards, but then we'll play twice as many games because it'll go super quick. 
that's probably what it's going to be. Which I'd be fine with. Uh, we have if it's good, which it probably will be. We have the sort of but not really sequel to Blood Rage coming out soon, Rising Sun, which is probably the most anticipated game generally among gamers, except for Gloomhaven. Well, Gloomhaven technically has already been released; just the second printing this year. I'd be interested to play that. I saw a video where the Dice Tower people played a portion of a game. It, I watched it kind of in the background while I was working on other things, and it did not excite me. It's a lot more diplomatic, and there's, like, actual mechanisms for alliances in the game. But it seemed really... It seemed like there was more than Blood Rage. There's more little bits and little small mechanisms involved. I don't know. I Honestly, it was in the background. I don't... I'm kind of speaking out of my butt here. Thunderstone Quest is the next one that I had to dig out of the list. And I've been super interested since I heard first heard about it from the Dice Tower guys... I think it was one of the first games after Dominion to do deck building, but it made it like a dungeon crawl in deck building form. And then they made this like epic variant of it that takes like an hour and a half to play. And you're like killing monsters and stuff, but it's all like a straight up deck builder. What's the name again? Thunderstone. Yeah, okay. And they're finally finally doing a reprinting of it, I guess. And it's supposed to be really good. So I'm excited about that. Hannibal Rome versus Carthage, which I did not pre-order because it was 80 bucks, and I'm hoping I can find it cheaper after it comes out. That's another card-driven war game. I think it was actually the, like the second card-driven war game that they're doing a new version of. Oh yeah, that was one of the inspirations for Twilight Struggle, right? Yeah, that's one of the ones they named specifically. Mm-hmm. I think it first came out in 95, and that's only two years after We the People. Okay. But it's been highly rated, much more highly rated than We the People. And I'm excited to see if the new version, you know, streamlines it or tweaks it more. Yeah, that's another one that I'll probably look at getting because I love Rome and Carthage, like that time period as far as history games. And I hope it'll be the war game that I thought Commanding Colors Ancients would be. Yeah, you you really like that area, the era of history. Yeah. 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 Although we got to play Command and Colors Ancients more. We, we should. Yeah. It's... We should set up, like, not next weekend because I'm on vacation. Some weekend we should just set up and play all day Saturday or something. Go through a whole bunch. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be super fun. All right. Giesman. I got to remain chill because it's the chill cast. Yeah, man. We're back to the chill zone. Why didn't you pre-order BIOS? Oh, BIOS. Um, look. Didn't it have, like, a raptor or an egg or something on it and you got all excited? Oh my gosh, the cover art is phenomenal. So, I mean, it's just the eye. It's like half of the, the cover is the eye of this Velociraptor thing. No, it looks amazing. No, so the BIOS games, I just looked into these like a month ago. There was a Kickstarter to, to do a reprint. And it, it just looks amazing. It looks like the kind of thing that you love or you, you hate. But I guess the gist of it is fairly heavy games that simulate evolution so you're some kind of organism uh i I can't even remember the names of them mega megafauna yeah yeah bios megafauna so this would basically be your dinosaurs and your mammals kind of early mammals okay you know as a player you control one of these species and, and i'm not even sure exactly how you adapt it but i assume you're adapting it but the thing about the bios games is that it simulates kind of the environment and it's brutal and you might not survive that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike, so I, I enjoyed evolution 
climate i played evolution climate i just think it's the best theme for some of these vicious games and evolution climate is light and you know you you have ad- adaptations and then you might eat your your neighbor's species but no big deal like you're all gonna end with with points with points yeah you might the game just might end in bios of megafauna yeah. because is it cooperative then no no it's competitive okay yeah and there's another one for microorganisms and then it goes on to like a civilization game and then a space that that has space faring in it well you, you can all play these games all these games are by phil eklund who's kind of a cult board game designer yeah, in that he has a very loyal, strong following. It, it fits but no with one else this love him or hate him vibe that I'm yeah. getting. And I believe he now has games that start at the origin of life all the way through the space age. Yeah. So he has one for like microorganisms and algae and plants and stuff. And then one in between that and the dinosaur one. And then the dinosaur one. He has a game called Neanderthal about early humans. He has a whole series of political political games. There's one about like Renaissance Italy, maybe maybe one about the French Revolution. I don't remember. And then he has High Frontier, which is his space exploration simulator game. But apparently, they're all very much simulation games and very difficult to learn, but very detailed and very scientifically accurate. And I was all excited because I was on a game buying hiatus and you're going to get one and i was finally going to get to play some phil eklund games and you disappointed me yeah you know i mean the decision was do i want to drop like 150 bucks for these two games you could get both of them on the kickstarter and i almost did but is the kickstarter still going no i think it's done yeah so disappointed see here's the other thing i own like five games i haven't played and you own like 50 games i haven't played i'm sorry i should have gotten it because i was excited about the theme I love this theme. I want more games about dinosaurs and microorganisms. I don't know. That that sort of heavy evolution simulation game sounds amazing. Like, that's something I would just, I would love. It sounds... Although I might prefer it as a video game, depending on how they do it. Yeah. But, I don't know. It sounds sounds really cool. I was mostly excited because I've been looking at Phil Eklund games for a long time, and I... Every time I look into buying one, I keep thinking, I would really love to play that game. I would very much not want to learn that game from the rule book. <laughs> and this was my chance, Matt. I wasn't going to learn it for you, even if oh, I bought it. Oh, you're just going to give me the rule book? And yeah, then, I was okay. going to bring it over here. Oh. Anyway, it is a fantastic theme, and you need to remedy these sins of yours and go buy an Eklund game. All right, we'll see. <laughs> oh, man, that's everything I had on my list. Is there anything else you guys are looking forward to this year? Yeah, I think we've covered quite a bit. Everything I'm in looking forward, I think we've I'm looking forward everything. to GMing now. Oh, yeah, now you've got to run a campaign for us. Yeah. I was actually thinking about doing a campaign after I got the table up, but if you're going to do it, hey. that's, that's great, too. I really, especially after watching the C-Team a lot, I really want to play an RPG and not DM it. Yeah. I didn't know that anyone else was interested. So I'm so interested. If you if you have ideas, Amber, I haven't thought of much. I've just thought about the idea of doing it and tried to start thinking about how much effort it would take. But I haven't made any sort of even. The, the end of it all is that it needs to happen. It needs yeah. to happen, and we need to record it, and then we can have a separate podcast for our game. 
Boom. All right. Creating content for Mark since three months ago. <laughs> Woohoo. Anyway, I think that's our chill cast for the day. Maybe our only chill cast ever. So if you're not feeling chill now, I'm sorry. Thanks for listening. Uh, remember to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Check out the website at thethoughtfulgamer.com and hit me up on Twitter or Facebook or even send an email. I'll respond to it. I don't get any emails, basically. I'm lonely, is what I'm saying. I'm joking. Anyway, thanks for listening. I will talk to you all later. Goodbye. Mark, why isn't there a cool chill quote at the end of your podcast? Oh, I forgot the quotation. Come on, man. I'm going to edit out about a minute of looking on Google while I find a quotation about being chill. All right. As the first Google result says when you Google chill quotes, life is so much easier when you chill out. There's my low effort quotation. We'll talk to you all next time. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Peace. Thank you.